Well, good morning. It is a joy to welcome you to First Methodist Mansfield. Welcome those uh, here in the well, as well as those upstairs in the well cafe. My name is David, and I serve as a senior pastor here. And I especially want to welcome you if this is your very first time with us in worship today. Uh, delighted to have you as our guest. If we can answer any questions, uh, do anything for you, we'd love to do that after the service. You can stop by the connecting point, which is right outside uh, your worship space. Uh, they also have a gift for you there we'd love to share with you for being here with us today. Uh, we have had a great weekend here at First Methodist. Uh, I hope you had a chance to be at the Good and Beautiful Conference uh, this weekend. If, if you were not here, I'm just going to tell you it was good and you missed it. And I told you it was going to be good. I warned you. But uh, because I am a very loving pastor, I have uh, created an opportunity for you to be able to catch up or if you missed any of the sessions uh, from this uh, weekend's conference. Uh, on the screen, you will see a link where the videos from all seven sessions will be available uh, this afternoon. We also have outside of our both of our worship spaces this conference booklet. If you want to pick one of these up, you can use it as you go through and watch those sessions. I really want to encourage you to do that. It was a, a phenomenal conference. I think you'll be really blessed by the content uh, that Jim and the others from the Apprentice Institute came and shared with us. It was a, it was a, it was a great time. It was a, a little exhausting, uh, too, uh, f for me. I, I, we finished about three on uh, yesterday, and then I had to preach uh, Saturday night. So I went home with the intention of just kind of vegging out for a moment. And my daughter, because she loves her father so much, took this, this picture of me. Um, I don't like sharing the remote in my house, evidently, and that's, that's, what she wanted to, that's what she wanted to capture, but I got a little power nap in so that I could come up and preach uh, for Saturday night, which was also, also great as we wrap up uh, this series, uh, Revival. Before, before we dive into that, I want to tell you where we're going next week. You've probably already heard we're starting a new series called A Deeper Life with God, which is really a follow-up from this series. You'll see that as we, as we finish this message. Uh, and also a follow-up from our conference. And so if you have not picked up your copy of A Deeper Life with God, this workbook, I want you to have one of these. This is a supplement for you as we go through this journey over the next six weeks. And we'd love for you to do this in the context of a small group or, or maybe your Sunday school class. Uh, if you're not connected to a group, we, we would love to help you with that. And when you pick up your workbook, uh, there at uh, each of those tables, either here outside the, the chapel space or upstairs. Uh, there's a little uh, form you can fill out that kind of tells uh, what you give your information and then, and then uh, when you'd like to connect with a group and our staff will be in touch with you to help make that happen. But I want you to hear this, even if you're not connected to a group, if that, is to if that just does not work with your life, if you travel, I mean, you're here for an hour every week and it's this hour and you cannot do a group, you can still do this on your own. The videos that are connected with this uh, are online. Take this workbook with you. Uh, I want next week everyone to show up with two things, your Bible and this workbook. So everyone get one of these. Uh, I think you'll be blessed. And a lot of what we're going to do in this series, I'm going to point you to some things that we have here in the book. And so I want you to, to be sure and pick one of those up. So we'll get to that though next week. Today we're going to wrap up Revival. And if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be. You'll see on the screen the page number in the blue Bibles in the chapel. Those are in the chair in front of you upstairs. Uh, we have a, a rack of those in the back. Feel free to, uh, to get up and grab one of those. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be. And let me just reset what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the idea that we believe that we are living in a time 
when the church is in need of revival. And we've said that that's not a new thing. That's actually something that we can see throughout Christian history. There are moments in, in the history of the church, seasons where the church has experienced revival and renewal. And our church, the United Methodist Church, actually grew out of one of those particular seasons of revival in the 18th century. Uh, John Wesley was an Anglican priest in England. He was the founder of the movement that came to be known as Methodism. And he was one of the leaders in, in a period of revival that really swept across the world called the Great Awakening. You may have heard of that before. Started in England, came over to the States. Our church was born out of that season of revival. That's the roots of who we are. That's why we exist is because of that revival. So what we said is we simply want to do in our time what others have been faithful to do in their time. We want to receive this treasure that we, have, that we have been given by those who have come before us, and we want to we be good stewards of that. We want to be people who bring revival into our world. And we've talked about where that comes from, that revival doesn't come from us. It doesn't come because we work harder or get smarter, but it, revival comes from God, whether it's your personal life, uh, a, a relationship in your life, your family, your church, a community, a nation. Revival always comes from God. And so we started this series... If you were here for the very first message, we actually all got on our knees and we prayed, God, bring revival, to acknowledge that that doesn't originate in us. It originates in God and what God does through us. The next week, we talked about that personal change always precedes world change. And, and so while we can all turn on the TV and say, wow, someone needs to do something about this, it, world change happens when people experience personal change. Our personal change is the fertile soil that God uses to bring world change. And, and that's what we see in, throughout history, but also in the scriptures too, that God uses individuals who open themselves up. And so we said the series is not about saying, hey world, figure it out, but about us saying, God, would you change us? Would you, would you grow us so that we can be people who can, uh, with you, transform the world? We've talked about that as a church. We're really uh, we're really biased towards this idea of growth, that we believe in a growth in holiness. We're going to talk more about that word today, holiness. And then last week, if you were here, I hope you were, Pastor Johnny talked about two different aspects of holiness, that not only do we want to grow in holiness, our love of God, but also we want to grow in our holiness, our social holiness, as we think about our love for others. And that's why, in case you're wondering, that's why we have things like prison ministry and homeless ministry. That's why we have a partnership with an organization like the Wesley Mission Center that was born out of uh, the heartbeat of this church. That's why we're active in our local community. Because we believe this life with God is more than just going away into a, a personal closet and praying and reading the Bible. But it's about serving and loving the, the least, the last, and the lost. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And that as we do that, that's not just like this extra thing that we do in our faith, but as we participate in those activities, God also actually continues the process of transforming us. Love of God always grows in relationship to our love for others. So there's personal holiness and there's social holiness. And then today we want to wrap it all up by, by again, just talking about what does it mean to grow in holiness. And so I want to remind you of, of, of the prayer that I shared with you uh, two weeks ago from Ephesians chapter 3. This was Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. I'm not going to read you the whole prayer again. It's in verse 14 through 19 of chapter 3 if you want to look at that again. But there's a phrase at the end of that prayer that we looked at. Paul says that I'm praying that you will be filled to the measure 
of the fullness of God. And I just want to grab hold of that imagery real quick as we dive into this. Filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And there's something here that we find throughout the scriptures. There's this idea that you and I were created to be vessels. We were created to hold something, to, to possess something in our life. There is a whole that has been intentionally designed in our souls and who we are that is meant to be a, a place that holds something. We are created to be vessels, just like this vessel that you see here. But this is one of the challenges of your life and my life. The challenge is that our lives get filled with so many other things. You've been created to be a vessel to, to hold the sacred gift that God wants to give to you. But that place in our lives, it just gets filled with all sorts of other stuff in our life. It gets filled with pride. We live in a performance-based world where it's kind of dog-eat-dog dog and, and you, you get what you can while you can. And so we, we, we tend to uh, be people who are committed to building our own kingdoms. And so we get filled with pride. We get, we get filled with with, with hurt and, and resentment and sometimes anger because of the pain and suffering that we go through in our life. We get filled with all this other stuff that wasn't meant to fill the, the vessel that is our souls. And because we are filled with those things, it prevents us from becoming the people that God has called us to be. And so what I want you to see here in, in this illustration, I want you to see what the Christian life is about. What does it mean to grow in holiness? What does that look like? So again, you were created to be a vessel, a vessel that was meant to hold a sacred gift. And the vessel, the, 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 the gift that you were meant to house, that you were meant to have within your soul, is the love and grace of God. That's what was meant to, to fill the vessel that is your soul, that is your life, the love and grace of God. And so if you think about this water as representing that, when we begin our journey of faith, we, we receive that grace. And in the very beginning, what I want you to notice is that that grace, it, it simply fills the empty space that is, that is there in our life. And as it fills that, I mean, we experience that, gra that, that grace and we grow, and yet we also recognize that that other stuff is still there. That other stuff that we, we really want to get rid of, we know is not the best for us. We recognize that it's, it is somewhat damaging to our souls. It, it, it's still there. But as we continue to grow in this process of growing in holiness, I want you to see what happens as, as that love and that grace continues to be poured into our life and it, and it fills that, that, that vessel that is our lives, it begins to to push out the other things that, that have clouded our life and filled our life for so long and, and suddenly they begin to leave. <laughs> this is what the Christian life is about. This is what it looks like. It's about being filled with the love and grace of God. This is how 1 John says it. 1 John says that perfect love drives out fear. What that means is that as love increases in your life, fear naturally decreases in your life. The vessel's only so large, it can only hold so much. And so as love grows, fear decreases. We sang a song this weekend, we've, we've sung it here too, you've heard it before, the song No Longer Slaves, there's a bridge to that song. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. Your perfect love drowned out my fears. 
That's the process. That's what this whole life is about. It's about being filled with the love and grace of God to the point that everything else in our life is it's driven out of us. Wesley talked about being perfected in love. And what he meant by that, what he believed as far as this process of growing in holiness, what he believed is that as love began to to fill us in our life, that we were perfected, we were purified, that things were, were pushed out of us, and that we could actually come to a place where every impulse of our life, thought, word, and deed, was driven only by love. Because it had filled us to such a point. It had, it, had, it had filled the entire vessel that is our souls and that every impulse of our life would be driven by love. We wouldn't be perfect. That's not what he taught, that we would be perfect like Jesus. But rather, we would come to a place that every impulse of our life would at least be driven by love. We might still sin. We could still say an insensitive word. But the impulse behind that word would not be anything but love. That love would flood our lives and fill our lives to that capacity that everything else was was pushed aside. That's what the Christian life is about. That's the journey that you and I are on. And I don't know where you are on that journey. You may be just beginning where you have received the grace of God and yet there's all this other stuff that's still there. Or maybe you're, maybe you're at that place where there's just a few more things that need, that need to be pushed out. But do, do you see that movement? Do you see what it means to grow in holiness? It's about being filled, in the words of Paul, to the measure of the fullness of God. Now, if that's what God wants to do in us, here's the critical question. I've always thought this is the critical question of faith. The critical question of faith is how. Like, you may look at this and you think, well, that actually does sound kind of nice. (laughs) Can you imagine how much different you would feel when you woke up in the morning every day? if the entire impulse and drive of your life was love. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, doesn't that sound good? When you think about joy and peace, do you see the connection here? Doesn't that sound like a great life to live? But how do we get there? That's the critical question. How does that happen? And that's what I want you to hear as we turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to hear how the writer of Hebrews talks about this journey. I want you to hear the metaphor that he uses as we think about the how. How does that happen in our life? And here's what you need to know as we kind of dive into the middle here of Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 11, the author has been talking about the heroes of the faith. He's been talking about Moses and David and Rahab, all these people that we read about in the Old Testament. And he's been talking about the lives of faith that they lived. And he does that for a particular purpose. He doesn't just, you know, we get to chapter 11 and go, well, what am I going to talk about now? He, he does it because he uses these characters, those who have died already and gone on, he uses them for a particular purpose in chapter 12. And I want you to see what he does. And as you see what he does here, I want you to think about the people in your life who have been your heroes. I want you to think about the people in your life who have given you the treasure of faith or at the very least have have made you open to what this might mean for you in your life. Think about those people who have loved you and poured into your life. Look at what the writer does with those saints. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So he talks about the journey of faith as a race that you run. 
And the imagery is that as you are running this race, you are surrounded all around by people who have loved you, who have poured into your life, who have run their own race of faith, who are cheering you on. These are not people that, well, you remember them, they're gone, but rather he places them in the context of this image. They're all around you, he says, and they are the great cloud of witnesses that are spurring you on for this race that you must run with, and if you write in your Bible, you should underline this word, you run with perseverance. Now, why do you need perseverance? Because this is not a 50-yard dash, okay? This is not one of those races that's like, okay, this is going to be really hard, but all i got to do is get to the back of the room. This is a marathon race. And because it's a marathon race, it's a long-distance race, which I have run a few times before, by the way. This is a race where you are going to need perseverance because there are going to be moments where you are going to want to quit. So we run with perseverance and, verse 2, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So here we are at the races. And the original audience who received this letter would have had an image in their mind when they thought about the races. They would have thought about the Colosseum and all the spectators who would come to see the people run that race. That's the imagery that he's playing on. Imagine the huge stadium that surrounds you and you look up all around you and you see the people who have come before you who have run a race of faith with with faithfulness. You got John Wesley up there in the in, in the in the skybox, okay? He's, he was 5'3", by the way, so he's probably up on somebody's shoulders, you know, trying to see you. I thought that was funny. Anyways, there, all these people are up there surrounding you, and you are running. And you are listening for those around who are cheering you on. You recognize some of their voices, but your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And the reason your eyes are fixed on Jesus is because he has actually run this race already. He knows every hill and every valley. He knows every turn that's going to be difficult. He knows, and, and the reason that we look to him is because in this race, you're going to be tempted to lose heart. You're going to be tempted to quit. So listen. Listen to the sound of those who are cheering you on, who have come before you, and fix your eyes on Jesus. And then, and then look, look at where he goes next. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <laughs> And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says. Now, as I read this to you, I want you to notice the repetition, okay? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not a true son and daughter at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His 
holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, let me, let me offer you a very obvious principle. This is something that everyone in this room already knows, but it's worth mentioning. Those who work experience the harvest. You already know that, right? Like nobody's writing that down. I don't know why. And those who work experience, this is totally obvious. Every single one of us understands this. Every single one of us who has children hopes that our kids learn this very obvious principle. That those who work experience the harvest. Your child may be the most wonderful young boy or young girl that the world has ever seen, but you want them to learn that those who work experience the harvest. You may love the place in life that they are in right now, but at some point you want them to leave. You want them to grow and mature into their life, and when they leave, you know that they're going to have to work to get the food that you have provided for them, to, go, to buy the clothes that you have provided for them. Everyone wants their children to learn. I am often confused by parents who grieve so deeply that their children are growing. That's the point. You want them to grow and mature. The movie about the 35-year-old who lives in your basement is a sad movie. It's not the goal. The goal is for them to grow and mature. And you know every parent knows that if your child is going to mature, they're going to have to figure this out, right? Jim talked about this weekend that, that if there was a farmer who went out and just said, God, I am just totally trusting you for this harvest, just make it grow. And that's all they did. We would think, what a dumb farmer. You got to till the soil. You got to plant the seed. You got to nurture that seed. You got to do your part if you want God, who brings the water, if you want the, the growth to occur. Those who work experience the harvest. And this is, in my, this is the biggest misconception that people have about this journey of faith. You see, you've heard over and over again, at least I hope you have in your life, and I hope you have claimed this and you understand this, that God's grace for you is totally free. You don't have to do anything to, to earn God's grace. And even if you tried, that, that, that wouldn't give you any more. God freely gives you the gift of grace. You cannot earn it. You can't even argue with it. God continues to give it. You can't talk God out of loving you. He loves you. That's just that's the end of the story. Love is your gift from God. Grace is free. But here's what we miss. Grace and holiness are two different things. Grace is free, but holiness takes real effort. You see, we hear that grace is free, and, and, and we, we kind of equate that with holiness, and we forget that effort is a part of this equation, not effort that earns our salvation, but effort that takes the deposit of grace, and then in our life begins to see a return on that investment that God makes in us. Grace is meant to do something in us. It, it's a free gift, but it is our effort. It's our partnership with God's spirit in our life that, that makes ourselves open to receive the love and grace of God so that we can experience the transformation that God longs for us to see. 
And let me just be a little bold here and push you a little bit. Some of us give so little effort to growing in holiness. We're, we're basically the, the person who lays down at night and says, God, by tomorrow morning, you would be really helpful if you would change me. Good luck, I'm going to sleep. Holiness takes real effort. It takes real effort to experience that transformation in, in your life, to see these things removed from us, to, to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. It takes, it takes discipline. Those who work are the ones who experience the harvest. If you've met anyone in your life and you've had a conversation with them and at the end of it you just thought, wow, that, that person, that's a, very, that's a loving person. I felt their attention. I felt affirmed. I, let me tell you, that's somebody who has spent time with Jesus and they worked hard to see that transformation happen in their life. God's the one who brought that harvest. Don't misunderstand me. But they put in the effort. They opened up their life. They made the time. They, in, they invested themselves in such a way so that, so that that could happen in, in your life. Holiness is not free. Grace is. Grace is God's deposit. Grace is God's investment in you. Holiness is what grace looks like when God's investment in us begins to produce a return. That's what holiness is. When grace begins to fill and those other things begin to be removed from our life. John Wesley was, was famous for being kicked out of churches and not for the reasons that you were kicked out of church when you were in, uh, a teenager. Uh, he was famous for being kicked out of churches and being asked to not come back and preach there because he was known as an enthusiast, which was a really bad thing in the 18th century. That's how, that's how bad their language was. You're an enthusiast. That was, the, that was the thing you did not want to be called. And basically, an enthusiast was someone who took their faith too seriously. They, they, they were too invested in that. There's another guy that you may know of who was a contemporary of John Wesley. You may have read about him uh, in, uh, uh, in your history books, William Wilberforce, uh, who was a member of parliament and who led the campaign over the course of decades to end slavery in England. You don't want to know who one of Wilber William Wilberforce's mentors was? John Wesley. And Wilberforce was a Methodist, by the way. And Wilberforce was one of those who was accused of being an enthusiast. Like, stop taking your faith too seriously. Stop trying to change the world with your faith. Stop trying to expect so much from us. And so Wesley, over and over again, was asked, thanks for the sermon, please don't come back. Because they didn't want to be challenged anymore by what he brought to them. He just took it too seriously. And one of those places where Wesley was not even allowed uh, to preach was in his home church at Epworth, where he grew up. His dad was the, was the rector there, the priest there for 40 years. When he came back to preach there, the new rector said, no, we don't want any of that stuff, okay? These people, they just want, they just want a pastor to love them. And you, so no, you can't come preach here. And so what Wesley did, what Wesley did is he went out into the graveyard and he stood on top of his father's grave, which by the way, was right by the front door of the chapel. And he preached on top of that grave. This is a picture of me. This explains that picture you saw on Facebook of me on this grave. And you're thinking, what in the world is David doing in a graveyard standing on a grave in England? That's Samuel Wesley's grave. 
And from that place, John Wesley preached his message to the community at Epworth that had raised him and blessed him. He preached it right outside the church that he had been baptized. And he did this uh, repeatedly. He, he went out in the open air and preached because no churches would let him preach there. One of the places that he was kicked out of was St. Mary's Church in Oxford. So after he was ordained a priest, uh, after his studies at Oxford, he was a fellow at Lincoln College, basically a professor at Lincoln College there at Oxford. Uh, many of the professors would preach at St. Mary's to the students. Wesley preached a sermon there called The Almost Christian. And after that, hey, please... <laughs> Please don't come back. Here's a picture of, uh, of St. Mary's. Many of you have read uh, a lot of Adam Hamilton's books, a, a pastor here uh, in Kansas City. That's him in the pulpit there in St. Mary's. He read to us there in that place this sermon, The Almost Christian. Now, the audience that day were Christians. They were all people who had already said yes to Jesus. Many of them were students who were studying theology there at Oxford to become priests. And, and what the message was basically about is Wesley contrasted the almost Christian to the altogether Christian. And he basically asked the question, which one are you? Hey, you people who are here at Oxford studying to do this with your life, which one are you? Are you an altogether Christian or are you an almost Christian? Let me read to you some of what he shared with them that day that led them to say, please don't come back again. He said, the altogether Christian has a love for God. Uh, this kind of love completely lays hold of the entire self. It claims every affection fills the entire capacity of the soul and engages the full range of its ability. Altogether, Christians have been crucified to the world and the world crucified to them. They are dead to the cravings of sinful humanity, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches. The altogether Christians are crucified to every kind of conceit for love is not proud and those who abide in love God abides in them the altogether Christian has a love for others our Lord plainly said you shall love your neighbor as yourself and so we may ask who is my neighbor we reply plainly your neighbor is every person in the world every human being created by God the maker of us all there's still one more characteristic of the altogether Christian. We may consider it separately, although it cannot properly be separated from loving God and neighbor. I am speaking of that which is the ground of all the rest, that is faith. It is crucial to keep in mind that the kind of faith which fails to produce repentance, love, and good works is not genuine living faith. The supreme question, therefore, for all of you theology students here at Oxford still remains. That's not in there, but I just added that for you. Has God's love been poured into your heart? Can you say to him, my God and my all, do you desire nothing but him? Are you happy in God? Is he your glory, your delight, your crown of rejoicing? Do you love your neighbor as yourself and as Christ loved you? Do you love even your enemies and the enemies of God? Can you say that you believe Christ loves you and gave himself for you? Do you have faith in his blood? Do you believe that the Lamb of God has taken away your sins and cast them as a stone into the depth of the sea? Does God's spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Later on in his life, Wesley compiled his sermons in order of importance, the ones that he thought were most important. This was number three. Are you an altogether Christian or are you just an almost Christian? 
Are you just kind of halfway in? Are you all the way in? Are you all together sold out? Are you, are you dedicated to this process of being filled to the fullness of God? It's pretty direct. And you may, if you'd have been there, may have been like me, you've been thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm all together. This guy's, this guy's serious. He's really serious. Do you desire to be filled to the fullness of God? Do you desire to have your life fully and completely transformed? Well, here's, here's the message of Hebrews. That will take effort. That's going to take work. That's going to take an investment on our part to say, God, we're going to give you space to do what only you can do to fill us to the measure of the fullness of God. The first message that I shared with you as your senior pastor, this is how I describe the reality of this church. We are a significant church. You are a great, great church. You are situated in a growing community, people who are moving into the Mansfield area where there are many opportunities to share what we have received from God with others. We are living in a radically changing world. You feel that, right? And we are living in a world where the Christian faith is increasingly seen as irrelevant. And I will share with you my perspective on why that is. Because our world so infrequently engages with people who have been filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Which is why the passion of my life and the passion of this church is actually growing you into Christ-likeness. Of being transformed. Being people that you never thought you could be. As the fullness of grace is poured into your life and all these other things that have clouded and held you back, they're suddenly, suddenly pushed away. But here's what you need to hear. That will take work. And that will take effort. Now, Jim said yesterday, he was actually quoting Henry Cloud, when he said that most Christians, when they go to church uh, on a particular weekend, the message they hear is, God is good and you are bad, so try harder. <laughs> and I don't want to leave you with that. That's not, that's not the purpose. Rather, the end of this message is meant to be an invitation for you to come back next week and to join us in this journey that we're going to be on because this journey is about helping you in this process of growing into a deeper life with God. I'm going to ask you to do some things that maybe you've never done before, things that will take a little bit more effort than maybe you have given before. But I want you to know why that is. Because I believe, I believe in transformation. I believe that God's grace has the power to completely transform your life and his love is poured in. All those other things are pushed out. But the question is, are you ready to work? Are you ready to work? Um, since we're at 12 o'clock, I'm going to share a closing prayer for us. I'm going to send you from this place and I didn't tell people up there in the cafe that I was going to do this, but this is what I'm doing, so be ready for this. Um, I really want you to pick up one of those books. I think you've heard me say that already. I hope that you are blessed. Uh, you have been blessed by this time and that you will go in the name of Jesus who has given you grace for the sake of sharing it. And so will you join me in this closing prayer as we prepare to leave? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this, your church. I thank you, Lord, for the way in which you have worked in the lives of these people. I thank you, Lord, for the honor that I have to serve them as pastor and to see, Lord, your joy, your heart, your peace at work in their life. I see that so often, Lord. 
And it is such a joy for me to experience that. Lord, thank you for this great weekend. Thank you for the way in which this church opened its doors to many to come and hear about what it means to live in relationship with a, with a good and a beautiful God. And I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen us. I pray, Lord, that we would not lose heart, that we would not grow weary. And if there's anyone, Lord, who feels that today, I pray that you would simply surround them not only with the memory of those who have given faith and love to them, but also surround them, Lord, with those in their life right now who are committed to running this race with them. Help us to wrap our arms around each other, to know that we need not only you, Lord, but we need one another. We pray for revival. We boldly pray for that, Lord, expecting it because we've opened ourselves up to you and we believe it comes from you. And so send us forth out into this world, this world that we know you love so deeply, that we may be your salt, that we may be your light, that we may share your love. Send us forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.